Morning all, morning one and all. My name is Jason. I'm the pastor here. And since the beginning of this new year, feels like ages ago already, uh, we've been talking about our values and our vision for 2022. So if you're new, it's perfect timing because we're talking about sort of who we are and why, sort of what makes us who we are and, and how that has changed now that we are uh, coming through this global pandemic. The goal, of course, would be for, uh, to give you a full articulation of who we are. Also for us to refresh and rediscover those things that have been true about us all along. Also, for you to figure out how you might get involved. That, this is Sam's mic, and this one is not going to hang on. So that's kind of the point of why we do this. And this week, we turn our attention to that uh, part of our values that we read simply in these two words, social justice. What is it about social justice that compels us? Now, different organizations, as you know, will define social justice differently. For our purposes, what I, uh, when I say the word social justice, what I'm talking about are the systems, be they economic or, or religious or political or social or otherwise, I'm talking about the systems that control the equitable distribution of resources, and most specifically in our, in, in our context, uh, the, the systems and institutions that control access to the centers of power and influence, okay? So when I say social justice, think about systems. Think specifically about systems that oppress real people. Always think about who wins and loses when you're thinking, guys. Always read the text this way as you grab our grab the Bible, think about who's winning and who's losing here. Think about what's shifting in terms of access to power. Think about the people living in suffering and what our sense of responsibility might be to them if we choose to embody this gospel that, that Jesus preaches. So for us, social justice is integral to the gospel. And when I say integral, I don't mean it sometimes shows up where the gospel is. Here's what I mean. There is no gospel without social justice. As I've preached this now for the third time, it seems to me that today's sermon is a series of statements that are just trying to weld those two ideas together for you. I'm going to try everything I can to get us to understand this as integral, one and the same. And that probably isn't even provocative to most of you now, since you are part of this faith community where progressive theology just sort of is the way we think. You're accustomed to this. You're accustomed to apply your theology to structures and systems. But not all that long ago, a guy like me could have lost his pulpit, could have lost his credentials for saying there's no good news without social justice, certainly in a southern pulpit. Think about our history just for a moment. Things are slightly better now, but I would, I would say the operative word in that sentence would be slightly. Things are slightly better now than they were. There's still so much work to be done around justice for us and for churches like us. And that's why we speak as clearly as we can about this subject. You see, minds and hearts cannot be free while bodies remain enslaved and oppressed. Is there half an amen? Is there half an A? Is there half a uh in the room? You know, it's funny. I'm going to yell at us for a second. You know, we go to concerts and we scream like nobody's business. Artists come to Austin just so they can hear the crowd. I don't know why we can't do that on Sunday morning. It's okay. It's all right. Minds and hearts cannot be set free. Somebody said something. Dr. Chuck's always good for an amen. Yeah. They cannot be set free while bodies remain enslaved and depressed. Ask any member of a minority group anywhere in the world, ask them if that's the gospel that Jesus preached, and they will tell you intuitively that's not the gospel Jesus preached. Set the mind free, change beliefs, leave us enslaved. That's not what the gospel's about. You see, what you do about what you believe is the single most important aspect of what you believe, of what your faith is. In fact, I would say it this way. The gospel doesn't live and thrive where social justice isn't the primary point, and I hope you agree. It's about follow-through. So in one way or the other, I believe social justice is what the entire witness of Scripture is about. 
Our text wasn't written by a single people group or a single family. It was written by many different groups, all of them oppressed over the period of about a thousand years, all of them yearning for freedom and liberation. Now, in this life, not the afterlife, looking for that now. Now, I don't know what you were taught in your formative years coming up in church or if you even came up in church, but the Bible isn't about heaven, the Bible isn't about hell, and the Bible isn't even about sin. It's about right living now. It's about shalom. It's about peace. It's about freedom and liberation now, not later. Whatever systems need to be changed, whatever resources need to be redistributed and moved around, that was the point, not the afterlife. Now's the point. That's the gospel Jesus preached. James, the brother of Jesus, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, calls it action. Jesus himself simply refers to it as love. Many centuries later, de Chardin will come along to call it cosmic cooperation. Of course, Immanuel Kant would talk about it as the inviolability of each. And the greatest of all American prophets, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., himself simply went with the simple word from Scripture, justice. It's what it's all about. The topic of social justice is so big, it almost defies summary. Almost, almost. But I will do my best today. You've heard me say this before, that I think the queen of all sciences is summary. We used to say, Dr. Chuck, that theology was the queen of sciences. I think summary is. Whoever can get it in a piece that we can digest, I think that's what we're looking for today. And so that's what I'm going to attempt to do. Our vision statement on our website simply reads this way, and we, tink we, tink we tinker with these a little bit over time. We were working on this one even this morning. It says this, we see a church that cares passionately for the oppressed, the abandoned, the helpless, and those in spiritual, relational, and physical need. We believe the church has a moral imperative to be an example of social justice in our community and throughout our world. And honestly, folks, I think as just a simple grab-and-go, that statement could almost preach itself. If you've been around here long enough, you know that we don't see reaching out to people in need as a duty. We see it as a delight. It's not a secondary role of the church. It's not a separate category of ministry called evangelism. It's not even a missional objective. It's part of who we are. We see social justice so integral to the gospel itself that if you show me a faith community that isn't oriented on that, then I don't think we're talking about a church. We're talking about some other thing. And we actually believe that it's the community of faith or the church. It, it's our role to model what this can look like to an onlooking world. Perhaps you were taught that people only need to hear about Jesus. That as long as we save their souls, we're all good. That's a good start, but it must not end there. Oh, the gospel contradicts itself if it just stops at the level of the head. I no longer see clear boundaries, clear lines between physical, spiritual, and emotional needs. I think there are just needs. There are just people. They're all the same. And any version of the gospel that leaves out one while focusing on the other is not the gospel Jesus preached. Matthew preserves some of the earliest teachings of Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry. And he began with these words, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know those as the Beatitudes. But then Luke comes along and adds his remembrance of this. Luke simply gives us, blessed are the poor. Well, either way, I guess poverty is poverty, whether physical or spiritual. But those aren't the words of Jesus I want to focus on today as we open our text. Let's look at Luke chapter 4, verse 16 through 21. And you'll remember this as the very first time Jesus stepped forward and initiated his public ministry. It's called the announcement of public ministry of Jesus. And it reads this way. When he, referring to Jesus, came, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He set, sent me to proclaim release to the captives and, and recovery of sight to the blind, and let the oppressed go free. 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. In the ancient world, we call that a mic drop. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, and we call this in the ancient world an encore. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus begins his public ministry with a statement about what folks, folks might expect from him at that moment when probably the greatest public interest in what he might say next was rising to high volume. He alerts the crowds to what he hoped the audience might look like, and he's identifying the market for the product he's about to launch. Think of it that way. He's picking his starting lineup, who he's going to put on the field. He's beginning to hire a touring band. He's showing us a list of initial stock picks. You get the picture. It's the IPO of the message of Jesus. And I want you to notice the purpose of his anointing. It's to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the prisoner, sight to the blind, freedom to the, to the oppressed. He's telling us what matters most, what's going to matter most in the new economy rooted in love and injustice. Translation, he's telling us where to lo look for an active God. It was everyone's question at the time. Anyone intimate with the pain of hunger, hear this. Anyone who knows the strains of shackles and chains at the wrists and at the ankles, any member of the voiceless, nameless, disenfranchised underbelly of society could now sit up and take notice. Inhabitants of the shadows, those who had no face and no voice, could now bask in the good news that they had courtside seats to the great unveiling of God's love. There's a couple of things here worth noting in this passage. Number one, the good news had a particular audience in mind. It's not just news. It had an audience in mind, meaning good news is designed for specific people in highly specific situations. And secondly, any institution or community that might rise up around this teaching to preserve the good news would either understand this target and continue to make it a priority or it would lose its soul. It would fold in on itself in time. If the gospel, if the goal of your faith community rather, is to gather away from the spaces in society where real people are sorting out the pain of daily existence in order to better understand the Bible, then you're most likely sailing in the direction of legalism and indifference. Another way of saying this might be building and maintaining religious institutions is all there is if you forget the people on the margins who are the target. In fact, you could think of it this way. There are no more margins. The margin has now been relocated to the center under this new humanity that Jesus is modeling for us. If the good news loses its target, it stops being good. I can't think of any more ways to say it. What I mean is this. And never let this go. Always ask these questions of anything you hear. The gospel has an intended audience. And you know what's interesting? It was never the church. It was never the church. There is no church if there is no oppressed people within arm's reach. If a community of faith exists in the same space as oppressed and suffering people and yet somehow fails to engage those needs or address those systems, it isn't the church. We're looking at something different. Doesn't mean they're evil, but they're not the church. Simple as that. The mission of people of faith is to carry on the work of Jesus, simply put. And if the targeted audience, according to his own announcement, were communities living in suffering and oppression, then that is our mission too. Hire who you want. They all come from California. They'll come and charge you tens of thousands of dollars to discover the mission of your church. What's wrong with that mission? As our friend Andy says, if you misplace your mission as a church, then maintaining your model is your only mission. By model, he means, of course, whatever your favorite way of doing church is. If you misplace that mission, there's nothing to do but maintain whatever you like best. You cannot separate social justice from the gospel. It's as simple as that to me. The bottom line is, 
the church is a huge waste of your time and resources. If it loses, misplaces, mistakes, its intended audience. If all we do when we gather is further define and refine our certainties and beliefs, our favorite theologies and doctrines endlessly in isolation from real people with no regard for oppression, then we're wasting our time. Don't invest any money in it. It's already dead. What's my point? Only distance from the oppressed among us can produce such toxic, irrelevant nonsense. Take the gospel and surround it with already converted people, already empowered people, already wealthy people, and this is what you'll get. A closed circle of insiders complete with a biblical rationale why they deserve what they have and others deserve to have what they don't. The gospel was meant to set people free, and if nobody needs to be set free, then there is no need for the gospel. Simply put. Here's what I want you to hear about this vision statement of ours. We don't look after the poor around here or set the captive free or work to liberate the oppressed so they'll come to our quaint little chapel on South Lamar. This is not a church growth strategy. No, no. We don't center on the margin, allowing God to tell us who to reach and uh, to eliminate any insider-outsider status. We don't center on those to feel good about it. For us, simply put, we consider the plight of the poor and the hungry and the blind and the enslaved and the oppressed because to us, that is what worship is. Worship in that sense is it, it, it's serving Jesus himself directly, not serving the church or our own ends. And like all good acts of worship, if we're doing it right, there's transformation to be had in exchange, transformation of us, which of course is the point of all of this. Now I'm sure you recall the parable that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 25. Those who thought that they were children of God neglected to alleviate the suffering of their brothers and sisters while the ones who were busy visiting the prisoner and tending to the needs of the broken were surprised to discover that they were working directly for God in so doing. The words of Matthew he attributes to Jesus are these. When you were busy alleviating the suffer, suffering of the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, and the lonely, the prisoner, you were taking care of my needs in some astonishing way. Jesus is saying, I am those people. They are me. Now notice Jesus didn't congratulate the sheep for praying for the prisoner or for attending to the spiritual needs of the captive. The children of God in this story actually took care of real human needs, physical, stinky, messy, nasty, complicated human situations. And they didn't do it for merit badges. In fact, they were surprised to discover to their own astonishment that they were taking care of Jesus himself, that it was Jesus, the lover of their soul, behind the eyes of those who suffered. Nothing mystical here. It's not hard to contemplate. It's not hard to get our head around. There's nothing ethereal, nothing even innovative in this. These were the ancient commands of God. Always look after those who are in need. Hebrew society was organized around this command from the very beginning, but they had lost their way. By the time Jesus comes along, it's all about who's in, who's out, nationality and pedigree and the right ways of thinking, the right allegiances to particular versions of political power. You see, they lost their way like it would be so easy for us to do today. And if we do, in place of the oppressed, religious institutions will be all that rises and thrives, replacing the original audience, and our gospel will no longer be good, except to the insiders. Now, maybe you don't think of Jesus as a Robin Hood. Maybe you don't like to think of Jesus as a grassroots organizer. Maybe that's distasteful to you. Maybe the redistribution of wealth concept buried in our biblical narrative elicits a visceral response from your gut. 
I'm just telling you that anything we build to memorialize Jesus and his message will have to understand and remain focused on the intended audience if it's to thrive. That's simple. Maybe you prefer Matthew's words over Luke's. Maybe you like to think of poverty as a spiritual state. Maybe that's more palatable to you than actual poverty. I can name for us that it's not super easy to get back into the world of Jesus. You see, our wealth and privilege have blinded us to things that other people in the world see so crystal clear. Bodies matter. How bodies are treated matters. Wealth and power and access to the center, it matters. How we live matters. Who we march for matters. Who wins and who loses matters. Deconstructing whatever systems we've inherited that determine the disproportionate distribution of resources and power, it matters. It matters. That's what the gospel is about. We aren't trying to get to heaven, folks. We're trying to bring heaven to earth. To paraphrase the Lord's Prayer, we're trying to build a new world here where doing things according to the will of love is the law, which I might point out, it does provide for our daily bread, our daily bread, not the mass accumulation of everything we like to warehouse and store up for the future. That would have been a virtue unrecognizable to Jesus. You see, Jesus was a material mystic. He was an earthly God, a worldly deity with actual tangible restoration of actual hurting and suffering people on his mind and on his agenda. I wish he was just a contemplative mystic who sat in a lotus position and asked us to think differently. But that's not who Jesus was. He was a man of action, a man of intervention, a man of disruption and interruption. Jesus spits on things and he touches people who were incorrectly deemed unclean and he does it on purpose and then he tells them to be quiet so he doesn't get thrown out of the city and have to wait 10 more days to be clean because he might miss an opportunity to touch someone else who's suffering. He showed almost no respect for uh, or deferences to notions of propriety and procedure and purity. It's if, su if such human ideas accompanied religious institutions that hurt others, that oppressed others, that made others suffer, that overlooked real human needs. And real people are always what it's been about. And that's who we are at ANC. We try to do that. We try to follow that example. Are we perfect? Not by a long shot. But we know the center. And we sail for it with intention and determination as best we can. Now, in conclusion, the work of social justice is never done. No matter how much we grow and engage as a community, this work will never be fully completed, which means as a partner of ANC, you will always be able to look around you and point out ways that we haven't grown enough yet, we haven't included everyone yet, we haven't engaged the world enough yet. You'll always see a gap there. You'll always be right if you point out that we're still missing it in some ways. We will always need to learn how to lean in more and stretch ourselves and release more and risk more. But the stone falls quickly from the open hand, as they say, which means things that we manage to completely release will, will, will waste no time in leaving us and we'll have a chance to become something new. But we must release it completely, which isn't as easy as it sounds. And what am I speaking about? I think the hardest thing to release, in my experience, is that center of power. You don't need me to tell you this, but I was born a straight, white, evangelical male in America, which means the, the access to the center has always been with just in a couple inches of my reach. I didn't make the world I was born into. It's not my fault for what it is. But unless I fail to name and acknowledge this unearned privilege, you see, I'm complicit if I can't see it and name it and deconstruct it. I didn't create it, but it must be named and deconstructed. I'm at fault if I close my eyes and deny 
that things need to be deconstructed. People are treated in such a way because we built systems to do exactly that. Remember in the beginning I told you, think systemically. I think it's the deepest truth about us. It seems, friends, the gospel properly understood will allow no one, no particular person's story, no tribe's mythology, no thing to hold the center save love itself. We're trying to be a church that grows and engages the world this way. We have come so far, yet we have so far to go. And that's easy to point out. This final thought. We don't consider the plight of the poor and the blind and the hungry and those, the homeless and the thirsty and those who are naked and those who need actual needs met. We don't consider them because the people who are locked in prisons of any kind of prison you want to you name. We don't do that be, because it's cool or it makes us feel all woke or hip or edgy. I know it's in style to be cause-driven now. That's not why we do it. That's not a good enough reason. No, friends, we see the gospel and social justice as completely interwoven, completely interdependent, because good news has to have an intended audience. And if we keep our attention as close to those actual people, that's our chance to build something that, that, that looks like Jesus in the world. Because in serving those folks, as it turns out, we're saving our own souls. We're being converted by that same gospel. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, no, man, it's about just preaching. Just, just get the mind free. I don't know what you were told was the full thing. So what does that look like practically? What does that look like for us? Well, an email went out this week with three great opportunities. <laughs> Maybe you read it. We have partners in town. Santa Rita and Rosewood, two of the oldest public subsidized housing complexes in America that are still thriving. And we're deeply connected to Miss Lupe and Miss Mary there. And so it's a simple Amazon click and, click and shoot, click and ship. We take personally their pantry. That's sometimes the only thing feeding families that live there, y'all. If we get the hiccups, they get the flu. Think about our economy. Think about those who are barely hanging on. Social justice is the gospel. It's how we live in the world. Same is true for Community First. Now, we were partners way back in the beginning. I remember that when it was nothing but trees and a dirt road. But we have new ways to partner now that the Heights are part of our congregation. And we've come up with this idea. Welcome baskets for, for new, new residents. And they're looking at a year of growth. And so we're going to take that personally. We're going to consider that to be an outworking of social justice for us. And if you want to serve in person, that again is a, is a click and shoot thing. If you want to serve in person, we're partnering with Austin uh, Reuse. They collect and redistribute things that are left over from, from households as well as companies. And we'll be working with them in person in total compliance of all the COVID protocols. You know we will. They're just simple ways to be in the world, you guys. I long for the day when we can be who we were before COVID. But listen, marry those two concepts in your mind. Nothing works unless it sets the whole human free. That's the gospel we in in inherited from Jesus. And I wonder if you would pray with me this morning as we contemplate that thought. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge this morning the size of the task. And we offer you simply our bodies in exchange to be part of something great in the world. Lord, you're so easy to find. It's just we don't look there. Open our hearts and open our minds. Open our hands. Let us be people in a world that actually see human need and address it for no other reason than that's because that's what you would do and that's who you are and that's who we are.
In your name we pray. Amen.